All right. The Home Lab Show is live. This is the Home Lab Show, episode 10, getting started with Ansible. And this is Tom Lawrence. And this is Jay LaCroix. Yes. And if you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, it's literally brought to you by Linode. One of the challenges is you people apparently like our episodes, which is wonderful, but episodes need a lot of bandwidth, and Linode was happy enough to sponsor the show and provide some bandwidth. Uh, Jay's actually a big user of Linode, so he'll tell you a little bit more about it. Yep. I've been using Linode for quite some time now. Like two years ago, I converted everything from the uh, YouTube channel, uh, Learn Linux TV, over to that platform. I've actually been using it, you know, even before then. I met the guys at Linode years before um, they were a sponsor at PenguaCon, a popular conference in Southfield, Michigan. And great bunch of guys, loved talking with them. And then, you know, later, got in touch. They became the first sponsor of my channel and it's been going great. They give you um, basically access to VPS or virtual private servers. You can spin up a cloud server for as low as $5 and they have ginormous ones for, you know, that's probably overkill for most people, basically whatever you need. You can host a website on there, a Minecraft server, um, whatever you can probably think of. And I have, I think, probably 12. I've lost count of how many servers I have on there now. So they are not only the sponsor of this channel and or this podcast in my channel, but they're the you know back-end provider of this podcast and my channel's website. So they're definitely a great platform. And you can use Ansible on them. <laughs> yeah, you can use that. So it's a great idea. You could just spin up a, um, you know, a Linode instance, and then you can basically learn Ansible, which is a great thing to learn because uh, selfishly, I love it. I'm a little biased, but I'm, you know, it's one of my favorite technologies. And that's just one of the many things you can do on there. Yeah, I I'm upset I did lose my Linode swag shirt I got from uh, Penguin Con. <laughs> so if Linode, if you're listening, I need a new swag. Sh- I need new swag. <laughs> yeah, I, think I only had one. Gold. I gave away the other ones, and somehow one <laughs> it disappeared when I moved. <laughs> you have a, spe- a special URL, Linode.com/slash/homelabshow, and what that'll do is give you a hundred dollars in credit towards a new account. And that credit is good for up to 60 days. So you can basically just get started without any bill because that'll definitely cover a few months of service for whatever crazy experiment you want to try out on there. Yep. And I did leave that linked. If you didn't hear it, it's linked in the show notes. So if you need to sign up and start with Linode, that offer code is in there to get you started. Uh, thank you very much, Linode, for sponsoring this podcast. We love them. All right. Now, once we've built our Linode server, uh, we're sitting at a blank screen, and I already see comments in there. Do we do polar push? And boy, Jay has a great series in Ansible. So a lot of the stuff yeah. we're going to talk about is also covered in Jay's series. But we kind of want to talk through the Ansible process in, in this right. particular episode. We do. We kind of want to start at the bottom. And we did kind of go over an overview a bit in the automation episode already. So a few of the things I'm going to say are probably more than a few are going to be similar or the same, but, you know, I think it's important to have a a little refresher, kind of, you know, create the mindset that's going to serve as the foundation for the rest of the episode, kind of just talk about what it is, why you want to use it, how it compares to other things. And then I'm going to go into detail. And, you know, like, like Tom mentioned, someone asked about uh, push or pull. I'm definitely going to talk about that for sure. And I'll even mention how I use it. And um, it's a it's an awesome technology. Um, I've used Chef and Puppet, which are pretty much competitors. I say pretty much because the way they operate is very different than Ansible, which I'll get into. Um, so I'm going to compare them. So first of all, um, let's talk about what Ansible is and how it compares. And what I'm going to talk about is a general high-level overview of infrastructure as code which um, is a very huge topic we could probably have a dedicated episode on. Um, but, but essentially, uh, the bird's eye view of it is you have a state. You want your servers to be a certain thing. Maybe you have a Proxmox server in your home lab and you, you want to set up a web server on there. Maybe um, you want to set up a Minecraft server or something like that. Um, and you don't need Ansible or any of these other solutions to do this. You could just create it and build it yourself. Um, Unfortunately, if it breaks, hopefully you have a backup or a template, an image or something like that. But infrastructure as code is able to take an instance, a Linux instance, generally speaking, but you can use Ansible on Mac OS, Windows or whatever as well. And it's gonna take that base and it's gonna build it up to what you want it to become, 
which is just amazing because you can literally just execute the process and just go grab lunch and then come back and your server's ready to go. It's just an amazing thing. And, and in the enterprise world, this becomes very important because when you have a group of servers where you need to replicate a process, there's two things that need to happen. You know, you need to build it out a certain way and you should document the way that gets built. Right. You can solve both of those problems with something like Ansible. If you take and build your Ansible setup and then document all the steps inside of it, one, the scripts and everything that you put together inside of there, all the different function calls you make are going to be the documentation, but of course, right. still add notes in between to what each section does. And as you kind of build these playbooks out, it's really great because now you've created something you can repeat, something you can do again. Right. And if a server just gets messed up, you then, as long as you keep your data separate to the server should always be thought of and as like ephemeral, like we can just destroy a server and rebuild it as long as the database is backed up. And usually the data, especially when you scale up to an enterprise, your data is on a separate data store. So we just rebuild the server because it broke for reasons unknown or reasons because we were playing with it. We just kick off the Ansible script again and it repeatedly builds the same server again, reconnect it to the data store, back up and running. Yeah, and a great example of that, and this isn't really specific to Ansible or um, configuration management, but it works, is that my Plex server is completely unimportant. I don't care if that server gets deleted right now. I just don't care. There's not one thing on my Plex server that I care to lose at all because the videos that it serves aren't even on that VM. It's like a I want to say 16 gigabyte VM, that's the total storage. And literally all that is, is the OS and the logs. And what I do is I use AutoFS, which is a solution that you could use to like, you know, mount Samba and NFS shares. And AutoFS will automatically mount it anytime you go to look at it. So if you have your data mounted in a specific folder, then that NFS mount or whatever it is, isn't mounted until you access that folder. You LS against it or Plex checks it to see if you have any new movies on there, then it mounts it so quick that Plex can't even tell that it ever wasn't mounted. So basically what that allows me to do is I could delete the VM, I could recreate it from the most recent backup, and it doesn't matter. It's just gonna always mount the same NFS store. The worst case scenario is Plex has to rescan all the media or something like that, but uh, who cares? But that's a, that's an example of that. You want you want the ability for a server to just go belly up and it doesn't really bother you at all because you know, you're doing it right. But that isn't about configuration management, but um, I think that is that configuration management is part of that end goal. It, it gets the server to that point. Right. I think something else too that, it's not itself a containerization platform, but it can be used to orchestrate whatever you want. Right. Uh, to even go a little bit step further, it's not just limited to Linux servers. For example, lots of different switches, firewalls, and things like that. If there's a way to configure them via SSH, they can also be put into Ansible to be able to run something on them. Matter of fact, if you wanted to go fetch some piece of data out of PFSense, you could build that into Ansible. Now, PFSense doesn't really lend itself very well to being configured from the command line. But it could be, at least if I wanted to fetch or check some status information on PFSense, I could tie it into that or any right. other firewall that supports SSH admin access. So you'd be able to run these playbooks to do that. Matter of fact, uh, free PBX would be an example. It runs free right. PBX, which is running asterisks at the end. But there are a lot of things you could do from the command line. So you, if you had a group of phone servers, you could write an Ansible to talk to them over SSH and say, I need to go grab all this particular information or change this setting on a group of systems. Yep. It allows that level of automation or even one of my uh, uses I've had for Ansible is just having my servers set up in a fleet where I just need the status of all these servers. I just want some type yep. of information and pulling that information and pulling it all back and doing checks on it is a, a great use case for Ansible. Exactly. And um, I think you hit the nail on the head when you're talking about all these servers and the things that you want to do with them. I mean, Early in my career, um, I started with Puppet, and we had at this company 60 Linux servers. So going to each server one by one and executing you know, a command is very possible. It's going to take a long time, but it's not like they had 1,000 servers or 10,000 servers. But still, even with 60 servers, you know, we didn't really want to deal with that. So we implemented Puppet at the time, and that was great because if I wanted to make a change to a bunch of servers, I would just implement the change in Puppet, all the servers would would then get that change in one shot. Uh, 
which is especially useful in the enterprise. If there's like a CVE, like a, a really big vulnerability that, that uh, hackers are taking advantage of, you can just, whatever the fix happens to be, the workaround mitigation, you could just issue that out and then all the servers would then be prote protected. But the pro the question then is, well, that's great for the enterprise. And I know there, we're going to have a subset of our audience that, you know, work in, in the enterprise because a lot of times you, you know, you, you use at home what you use at work for learning. But the average home lab person might be saying, well, why do I care about updating 60 servers? Because I only have like five, right? But the point though, is that it still has value for home lab because there's going to be some changes in settings, best practices that you want to make sure are the case on every server you spin up. So an, a good example of that is OpenSSH, which is probably the best thing to, to configure to start with because you don't want OpenSSH open to everyone, right? So you could lock down root authentication and disable that. You, you can use Ansible to add your key, your public key. You can, all the best practice OpenSSH settings, I'm not going to go into those because I have a whole video on it, but that, yeah, that's a good one to start with. And then you could be reasonably sure, you know, just use whatever your configuration management tool of choice is on any new server you spin up or when you replace a server, and then you can have those best practices already there and you don't have to go in and do that manually every time. Right. And I already see people in the comments talking about they've used it to configure their firewalls and yep. uh, manage systems. It's, it is a popular way to do it. And it's one of those, uh, even configuration backup, being able to go out and say, you know, you build out the list of servers that you have because you want to check them regularly get the status update or just make sure, you know, let me just kick off a backup. But then of course, once you've done it once, you build the automation around it as a cron job, say, you know, every time just back this up. That way, as anything is happening out there, you're repulling everything back to a central server using Ansible or whatever the orchestration tool you use. But it's part of your automation stack, essentially, where it's one more tool in the toolbox to be able to uh, pull that over. So let's talk about then the competition, or I shouldn't say competition, but um, but you know the what other I mean. alternatives, other alternatives, right? <laughs> so how they do it and where Ansible kind of fits in with this. And I started with Puppet, and then I went to Chef. So I, I used both before going to Ansible, which is probably one of the reasons why I appreciate it so much. I know a lot of people are probably starting with Ansible, so they wouldn't have um, experienced those other solutions. But with those, the idea is you have your server that contains the state. It's very common in all these solutions, Ansible, Chef, and Puppet, to have your you know, configuration management code in version control, which is a great thing to do because you don't want to work on all that automation and lose it, especially if the server itself goes belly up. I mean, then it's like, well, I lost everything, including all the work I put into all the um, customizations that were in there. Um, so, so it'll be in version control, and you have this central server that has some kind of an index. It, it knows about other servers and the process is different between Puppet, Chef, and Ansible. But effectively, that it's a server-client relationship. The client has an agent that is using memory all the time, running and checking things. And periodically, that agent is going to reach out to the server. It'll be secured by a certificate and it's going to pull the most recent instructions. If there's no recent instruction, it's just going to make sure that the state of the system is at the most recently defined state. So if you haven't updated those um, configurations in weeks, then the agent is still going to look at it and say, oh, I got to check the OpenSSH uh, config file and NTP and all these other things that you've defined to make sure that no one went in and just changed it to um, be like an unauthorized change. So basically, if you have someone logging in and they decided, oh, I'm going to open up uh, open SSH to the world, um, then the configuration management utility looks at that and says, oh, that's not what was defined in the code, so I'm going to just uh, revert that back. Now, that client, that server-client relationship is fine, but Chef burned me on that. And full disclaimer, I'm going to complain about um, <laughs> here, but I do want to give the disclaimer in all fairness that this was my experience years ago and and it, it might be completely invalid now, my complaints um, in full disclosure. But with Chef, I worked at a managed service provider at the time, and one of the clients would would email me or message me and like, yeah, the server is hitting 100% for like 10 minutes every hour. Why? Why is it doing that? 
And, you know, I didn't know Chef very well. I looked into it um, and I learned it and I, I'm like, oh, well, it's Chef is running and it's going through the entire server and checking everything, making sure it's perfect. And, and I thought that was a great answer. But, you know, the client didn't really like, really like that. It's like, is it not optimized? Is it I mean, why is it using the entire CPU to do a, a routine check? And I'm like, that's a very good question. And I don't really know how much of that was the fault of Chef because I wasn't the one that implemented it there. So it could have been the person before me uh, might not have uh, followed some best practices. But either way, I felt like Chef was just heavy, um, just just not so lightweight. And that was a concern to me. Before that, I tried Puppet at a previous company. I liked it. But what made me switch off of Puppet for personal use is I can't remember which version of Debian it was. Uh, it was a Debian. It was Debian stable. They just released a new version, and um, when it came out, Puppet didn't support it. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, why? You don't support Debian stable? I can understand Debian testing or unstable, but you don't support the version of Debian stable. And six months passed, believe it or not. They still didn't support the most recent version of Debian. And I remember going into, into a message board, and maybe I was in a bad mood. I'm like, how do you guys not support the latest version of one of the most popular Linux distributions? And their response is, yeah, we'll get to it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm like, at the time I was using Debian on everything and I'm like, I can't, I can't use this because I don't even know when I'm going to be able to use Puppet on this distribution. So I, I kind of um, stopped it. And again, that may not be a problem. They may support all the distros on day one nowadays. I wouldn't know. But Ansible is kind of where I ended up. And I feel like that's a that was a great solution for me, and I'll tell you why in a few. I, I think the other side, from what I like, from my much more basic usage compared to Jay, because this is I don't actually use as much Ansible uh, because most of our uh, so many of our clients are running Windows, so it doesn't work as well for that. But a lot of the stuff I build in my lab, I don't have to load anything on those servers. I can start with a basic server, make sure my SSH keys are in there. And then from there, if I have a couple of things I want to run with Ansible, I can do it from my system that has Ansible loaded. But because the commands are issued from my computer, executed just via SSH, it makes it simple without having to load much on whatever it's talking to. This right. is what lends it to working on things like firewalls. Um, you don't need to load Ansible on the firewall. You just need to have the SSH access. Um, and then you have all the commands on your system. So your system is running Ansible. And that's... Where we're going to Jay's going to talk about that later, where we talk about Ansible Polar Push, but that is yeah. one of the use cases uh, for it, and one of the reasons I like it. It's kind of a simplicity thing for an orchestration tool because there's no, it's agentless. It doesn't need any specialized things to be loaded on the device, which gives it that broader support. And and the, that's kind of that's kind of the interesting thing about Ansible because, you know, the the elevator speech of Ansible sounds easier lighter than the other solutions and that's true but that simplicity causes additional complexity in a way which was really confusing to me when i first started with ansible and what i've learned is that there's a there's a there's a generally agreed upon way that most people implement ansible but there is no one right way to do it so with chef and puppet it, it's pretty cut and dry you set up a server you uh, test the agent, you install the agent, make sure they could talk to each other. And that's how you do it. It's, it's, um, and there are other ways to implement those too. But generally speaking, when you read any book or, I mean, there's a way to do Chef and there's a way to do Puppet. But with Ansible, I liken it to someone just dumping a bunch of Legos on your lap and they're like, build what you want, how you want it. Um, you know, they give you the tool, but they're not going to like, um, you know, the finger at you you need to do this a certain way now to be fair in the forums there's always that person right you, you do it a certain way and you're proud of it and then the response you're asking a question you know you want to know something and rather than getting the answer to the question you get instead why are you doing it like that and that that's always kind of annoying but it doesn't happen as often when it comes to ansible but there it does sometimes there is a generally agreed upon way that most people implement it and it's it's kind of like the server client relationship in a way where you have what Ansible calls a control server or a control system, basically, that executes SSH commands. So the client, which let's just say you have a um, client on your Proxmox server, then your um, you know control server will SSH in and execute the commands on the target server. The target server, like Tom mentioned, doesn't have an agent. It needs that SSH connection. So there's nothing checking, nothing running all the time. 
the server is making an outgoing connection to the client that it's controlling and controlling it. And you could have hundreds of servers and it's just making connections out to each one, um, going through your playbooks as they call it. Each platform calls their config, um, their their text files a different thing. It, you know, it's playbooks here. Yeah. it's I'm not a sports person, but I, I hear that that's a play on sports. Um, can't confirm nor, de- nor deny that. So that right there kind of sounds cool because it's it, you're not you don't have to run an agent. It's lightweight and like Tom mentioned because it's SSH, it works on basically everything that that you can connect to with SSH. Yeah, and, and kind of like G said, I, I, I could summarize a lot of that as the uh, the lack of an agent, the simplicity of the agentless system causes the complexity because everything has to be initiated from your server deployment side. So you have to have your playbooks and everything set up right to handle all the complicated tasks. You have to have them so they're be, without an agent, you're just returning whatever value. So if I start a service, I need to also uh, bring that value back of whether or not that service started successfully or put some type of check in there and the command issued gets the check and then brings it back to the Ansible server to compare the value of what the response was and then can initiate back a secondary command if the response was something different. For example, you know, what version of software you're running? Because Ansible can be configured to first ask that question, is this a Red Hat or a Debian or some other, like an Arch? It can start asking those questions and then execute scenarios based on the responses. But that's what allows it to be not only agentless, but allow you to singularly write, depending on how good you are at writing it and diving into the complexity of it is what we're going to do. When right. you have that, it will then ask those questions of the of its agent that it has SSHX to and then execute commands based on each one of those responses. But this does keep it, you know, it sounds very complex, which it is on the server side, but this allows you to have any agent. I spin up the most basic of servers over in Linode and whatever I chose to spin up, doesn't matter. It's going to ask that question, have a response and start kicking it off. And don't worry, you don't have to write this all from scratch. There are a lot of code repositories on GitHub to uh, copy and paste from. In fact, we should probably add the repository that, um, excuse me, we should probably add the repository that I've added to the Learn Linux TV GitHub page that actually has a really huge example of a lot of things that you can do, which I'll talk about later. Um, But you know, the elevator speech kind of does sound simple, like the way Tom mentioned it, which is true. There's a lot of complexity here. But generally speaking, no agent, one less thing to worry about. Yep. That, that's usually the first thing that a lot of people think of. And, um, <clears throat> you know, that's true and all, but that's from that simplicity is where the complexity starts. Because with Ansible, you have an inventory file, which starts out very simple. It's a text file. One per line, you have a um, DNS name of a server or an IP address. You don't have to have um, DNS set up. And you can have different roles. So you could have like a web server role, a database server role, and you could basically just put the IP or host name of, of a machine underneath that role. Again, one per line. And that that's how you determine what server is a part of what role. And then Ansible sees that when you run it, you have these 10 servers. Three of them are web servers. The other are whatever they are. And um, with roles, you can define which playbooks run on which servers. So that way you don't have, you know, a role for a Minecraft server and then it's spinning up a web server on there because you have a web server playbook. It, it's intelligent to know you have this set as a web server. So I'm going to run this uh, playbook here only on that. And then whatever apps you have, you can separate them by roles. Um, but taking a step back, um, actually, the, the inventory file it gets even more complex when you start reading more because one thing that a lot of people don't know is that if the inventory file, which is normally, again, a text file with a list of servers in there, if it's executable, it'll execute it instead of read it. Now, you might be thinking, why would I Why would I want to do that? Well, think about it like this. If, you, if you're working in the enterprise and you have Amazon Web Services, that inventory file could be a script making API calls to Amazon and fetching in real time a list of the servers that you have there every time it runs. So rather than reading a hard-coded list of servers, it can instead use that inventory file as a way to execute a script that um, connects to your platform. And there's other platforms, Azure, Google Cloud, uh, Linode, DigitalOcean, all of them, basically, to make these API calls to find out what you have. And then you no longer have to maintain that inventory file. So there's a lot of things 
Ansible is one of these things that it starts very simple, but it's endlessly complex in a good way because you always have a new thing to learn. You could be in a situation where you have everything the way you want it. And then someone comes to you and says, you know, you'll save about uh, five minutes off your run if you just implement this tweak. Oh, wow, thank you. And then it gets that much better and it just never ends, again, in a good way because you find all kinds of new fun things that you can use it for. So should we say it's easy to get started, but a lifetime to learn? You know, we'll just put the cliche on it. <laughs> I, I think, I think that's, that's how it is. It's kind of addicting. You get started like, hey, I added one thing, another thing, another thing. And how, how many years have you been working on your deployment scripts, Jay? I mean, <laughs> I think five. I lost count. Um, I'm, I'm still working on them. <laughs> I, I love it. But I'm, I'm always and there's always new edge cases or new apps that I discover. So sometimes it's like I can't remember the name of it. I found a Markdown text editor, so I had to add that to my Ansible for my laptops and desktops to get that installed, and I, I did as I discover new apps. Um, now, another thing that I think new users should know, and, and maybe some of them have this question, okay, so you have a control server and it controls whatever your servers are, but what should the control server be? Can it be a Raspberry Pi? Can it be a physical server? Can it be a Proxmox instance? Yes. It could be any of those. Um, in fact, a control server could be your laptop even. It doesn't really matter. You don't even have to have a server per se. You could literally just have a Git repository that has your playbooks in there. And maybe your laptop is the thing that will make those connections. Maybe you will just kick off an Ansible job from your laptop. And at a, in an enterprise, you could have a repository that engineers check out. And then on their workstation, they use that to kick off the commands or they could just spin up a dedicated server that everyone logs into and they just uh, fire off the commands from there. That's all valid. I mean, if you have a Raspberry Pi lying around, keeping in mind the whole process will be much slower because of the IO bottleneck, but it'll still work. You can literally just make your Raspberry Pi the control server, your laptop, whatever you want. If it runs Linux, it could be a control server. Yeah. And that's actually kind of a cool thing that to think that a small little Raspberry Pi can be the orchestration server for even something large in enterprise because it doesn't really it. I mean, it just has to do some comparative commands, uh, yep. eval, do some evaluations and run the or roles and playbooks as it uh, finds those responses. So it doesn't that's not a heavy lifting type thing for this type of orchestration. Right. And the way Ansible works is. The, you, the playbooks are written in YAML, and each of these different solutions will have a different chosen language for their um, config files and scripts and whatnot. Um, YAML is pretty easy to learn, but you don't really have to learn it necessarily. You could just learn what the you know individual um, commands, modules, and syntax is for anything related to Ansible and just stop there. YAML is not specific to Ansible at all. You'll find YAML in other places. It's getting very, very popular. Um, it's surprising where I find it nowadays. It's very easy to write. Um, so where in Chef, or maybe it was Puppet, I don't remember, like installing a package via apt would be like a Ruby block of code. Whereas with Ansible, it's like apt colon, and then on the next line, two spaces over, name colon, and then the package name. That's it. You're done. Just those two lines. That's You install the package. And then you could basically install 10 packages off of one play, as each individual instruction is called. And you, you can basically have a, you know, on one per line with a hyphen, a name of a package. And that one, um, in that one shot, you're installing all those packages. So there's going to be modules like apt, DNF, yum, zipper, Pac-Man, whatever your package manager is for whatever your distro is. So if you're running um, Ubuntu, then you'll use the apt module, same with Debian, uh, zipper for OpenSUSE, um, Pac-Man for Arch. And those are all modules. You just call Pac-Man. You just call apt and tell it what you want to do. But another thing is that there's a generic module called package. So where you would normally say apt, you say package. And at that point, you don't care if it's Fedora, CentOS, Debian, or whatever. It knows what the package manager is on the target. You don't have to tell it. It'll just install the package of this name with whatever the package manager happens to be. The problem, of course, is that not all distributions, you know, name the packages the same. So if you're trying to install Apache 2 in Debian, that's fine because that's what it's called. But if you try to install that package name on CentOS, it's not going to work because the package there is HTTPD. So there are some, of course, limitations there. But if the package is the same name, 
on all the servers that you manage, you could literally just use the package module and not even write anything that's distro specific at that point. Um, and I've gone as far as to make the package name a variable and then it checks the distribution and I just fill in what the package name is for the various distros. And um, I could still have one play for installing packages for all my servers. So like I mentioned, you could keep on simplifying it, consolidating it, and it just keeps growing. In an example of this, um, and someone says, do you run this on a schedule or do you just run it on an as needed? There's a couple different school of thought there. Uh, if you, for example, I find another package I want to add to all my servers, and this has happened before. Like, I don't know if I've done a video on LNAV. It's a really cool log navigation system. I love the way it highlights. It has regex built in. Neat thing. I'd like this on all my fleet of servers. So, you know, without something that's automation, I have to log into each server because they're already existing, stand already stood up and running. I can log in each one, obviously, and app to get installed because it's in a repository, or you add it to your Ansible. And then because I've made a change to my Ansible, I can then push uh, that change out and say, go ahead and check all these packages. And it has all the previous packages I've installed on those servers and the new one I added. Or you put things in a queuing system. And the concept of that be, I added it. I don't need it right now, but I'd like it to be there in the future. So I update my Ansible system uh, on that server and say, update it. And I know it runs every night at 11 and it goes and updates those packages. So it kind of depends. You know, you can always force run it, but it's nice when you put things on a schedule because maybe there's downtime when you want these packages to do something else or your script does other things like go ahead and, and check to make sure everything's updating fine and returns the value. I know you can standalone each server to like unattended upgrades or it's equivalent and non-Debian based distributions, but you also want an answer back of did those updates fail or for some reason you have a server with a DNS failure. So it actually never sees any new packages. This is where the Ansible automation can be checking this all the time for you because it's checking it and logging that server and bringing you back the response. And then you can kick off a trigger to say, this one thinks there's no package updates, but all the other ones do and kick you off for investigation. So it kind of depends on your base usage of whether or not you want these to run all the time or you want them to run some of the time. And this is really home lab too. If you're just running a few servers, you still want to create those up to date and you still want those things to, especially if you're, making anything public facing in your home lab, you want to make sure all those servers aren't just saying they're updating. You want some verification they are. When I first started with um, home lab configuration management, there were a few things that I wanted to make sure that every server had. <clears throat> and one of those was um, obviously open SSH settings, which I've already mentioned. Um, since I do a lot of file synchronization, then um, I wanted to make sure NTP was installed. And I apologize for my uh, sporadic allergies. Um, I live in Michigan um, and it's <laughs> springtime, so there's that. Yep. But anyway, um, the, the fact is, I mean, you could just implement this any way you want intelligently, but it always has the same starting point. So again, for me, is OpenSSH and NTP. I, wanted, I, I learned the hard way um, quite a long time ago when you are syncing files between computers and servers. If the clock is not synced on any one of them, it's gonna throw all the other ones off because you, you could have old versions of files that it thinks are the newer one. Um, so NTP, obviously, you know, one of the first things I wanted to make sure that the NTP package was installed, that it's running. That's what that's one of the things that it can do. And then from there, it just kind of grew. And what I ended up with, and this is kind of like the um, this is part of it. I'll get into the more advanced side of it. Um, you can you can have whatever layout you want. The, the layout that makes sense for me is to have three roles. And you could define whatever roles you want, a Minecraft role, a web server role, a Plex role, whatever. What I did was I have a base role. The base role is applied to everything. There's no separation at all whatsoever. The base role are the things that I feel like every server needs to have. Examples, um, my, bash, my bash config. When I log into a server, I want my bash RC on there and I want, want it the same on each. So that's on the base role because that's not system specific. And OpenSSH tweaks, NTP tweaks, th those are all in the base role because they're, they're not really specific to any use case. So the base role gets applied to everyone. And then the other roles I have are server and workstation, workstation, laptops and desktops, and server, obviously servers. So that's when it starts to branch out. I'm not going to install Steam on my server, right? That's for my workstation role to do. Uh, I, don't, I don't want that on my server. So that, that's why I have that separation there. And you could be as granular as you want. Maybe you're... Um, instead of having one server role, you just have a bunch of different kinds of servers that you can create. 
Um, I even at one time had it check the CPU type. And if it's ARM, well, it's a Raspberry Pi. So there's going to be some Raspberry Pi specific things that I want to do here. So um, you could basically lay it out any way you want, whatever makes sense for you. Yeah. And I would say LNAV needs to be part of all the servers, you know, right. or even workstations, because it's just great for log navigation. I'll give them a plug. It's a it's a cool free open source project. <laughs> and it's in the repositories. <laughs> I should probably check that out. Yeah, I but, recommend um, it, Jay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear that. I'll definitely check that out. Um, now, it started to become a problem for me, though, because um, the issue is that, um, well, actually, it's not an issue. The first thing I did was I, I implemented messaging. So I actually hooked it into a Telegram bot. So anytime Ansible ran, it would uh, fire off a message to Telegram to let me know that it did that, which you can do. And that worked out great. But the problem was... I also have it running on laptops and desktops, and I, I don't want to waste power. So I'm going to suspend my computers when I'm not using them. Maybe my laptop is in my bag at the moment, and it's in suspend mode. Maybe my desktop hits suspend because after 30 minutes, that's what it does. So I would start getting errors. Uh, Ansible, the, the control server would, would send me errors like over and over again because I had it on a cron. It was running. I can't reach your laptop. Can't reach your laptop. Can't reach your desktop. I know. It's in my bag. I don't care right now. It, it doesn't need to always be available. But the control server is just trying to hit your machines during the time you tell it to hit your machines. And I came up with a very hacky solution to fix this problem, which I'm not even going to mention because it's not the way that I recommend to do it. Um, <laughs> we've all been there, right? We, we yeah. have a Band-Aid approach to something. Wait, I'm still there. <laughs> yeah. So I discovered Ansible Pool, and that's what changed everything for me. And that is my favorite way of doing it. And I don't feel like it gets enough recognition. Almost everyone uses the control server approach. And there's nothing wrong with that. If that works for you, that's awesome. Especially if you only manage servers that are on 24-7. It's especially easy. But I wanted it to be the reverse. What Ans and that's what Ansible Pull is. It pulls from a Git repository and runs at localhost. So instead of a server reaching out to your web server... Your web server is reaching out to your Git server, pulling down the playbooks and running them against itself. The problem is you might think that you can't really differentiate roles at this point because every server is named localhost at this point. So if you are matching on name and your web server name is web server one, but it's going to report as localhost because Ansible pull is running localhost. So what do you do? You could still actually use a, I think it's dash I, if I'm not mistaken, and then you just set that equal to the host name variable in, in the shell, which is just dollar sign host name. And it'll match on the host name still, even with Ansible pull. So you can still use roles at this point. And that's kind of the thing that makes this all work for me. So every single computer basically checks out a Git repository. And that's what Ansible pull does. The Ansible pull syntax is Ansible hyphen pull dash capital U. And then it expects a URL to a Git repository. It supports other repositories too. Inside that repository, it expects to find a playbook with the exact name of local.yml. If it doesn't find it, then it expects you to give it the name of the playbook if it's something else. But if you don't give it the name of a playbook as an argument after the URL, then it's going to expect to find a local.yml file in there. And then for me, that's an index that pulls in all the other things. So when I first start up my desktop, um, the next time the cron hits, it's going to check out the code. It's going to run at localhost. But here's where it gets even better. Each machine, when I run Ansible the first time, it adds its own cron job to itself. Now, let's think about that for a minute. In Ansible, I have a playbook called cron.yml, and it's adding the cron job that will be used to check out any further runs of Ansible that you know, going forward. So after Ansible runs the first time, the code will add the cron job to that machine. So all subsequent times it's going to check, it's going to do it on its own. You only have to do it manually that one time. And then from there, it's going to pull it itself. And that's kind of like the glue that I think makes this work because run it once, then you're done. And then, then you have the problem though of silently failing because what if you think like everything's okay you don't have it set to email you when it runs, or maybe you do. And you just haven't seen an email from one of your servers in a long time, but you, you know, you're not thinking about that. You know, life is happening. You don't really care. It's just one less email, but then wait a minute. I haven't heard from that server in a long time. Oh, it hasn't been running for three months because something's broken. 
what you can do is use a service called healthchecks.io, which is not specific to Ansible, that you can add, you can add it to the end of a cron job line. And it's just like making essentially a ping request, basically. And you can set that if you're a member of that service, you sign up for it, you have a special key that you give it. And you could have one for each cron job, one for each server. And you could say, if you don't see this uh, respond in 30 days or a week or whatever you think the timeout, timeout should be, email me, let me know. And it'll literally say that this cron job hasn't ran in a long time. So if you look at that, you could say, oh, well, that's my secondary laptop and I haven't used it in over a week. So that's expected. But if it's your web server, oh, yeah, well, I need to see what's going on there because that should have ran by now. So Ansible pull gives you a lot of flexibility, but again, it's the, it's the reverse. Rather than a control server using SSH to log into your machine and run commands on it, it's just doing essentially a git pull, and then it's running Ansible localhost. Sounds simple. I also added in the show notes, uh, it's healthchecks.io, just so we're clear on the, that. And the other one was lnav. Uh, dot org lnav.org so we uh, make sure we're clear on those but those are yeah. a couple the, the health checks is actually a pretty cool one um for being able to set up free cron job monitoring is a really simple service uh on there yep and and one thing that i think is universal regardless of what solution you use for configuration management the bootstrapping process so as tom mentioned earlier um this is kind of self-documenting because if you have good code you, you know what it's doing I mean, when you first start out, if you're like me, you have a text file for, for your Plex server, whatever it is, with all the commands that you used to build that server one after another. And if it goes down, you just execute them all. And then you can put that in documentation. So if you need to rebuild the server, you can do that. But if you have configuration management, you don't need to have all the steps written out anywhere in documentation because it's in the config management code. However, um, what about the bootstrapping process? Meaning if you're using Puppet, how do you get Puppet installed? If you're using Chef, how do you get that started? You have a new, have a new machine, you want to get Ansible running on it the first time. Well, what, what do you do to get that going? Obviously, it's apt install Ansible or yum install, DNF install, whatever. Um, you could document that. But the bootstrap process gets interesting because that's where I, I have a little bit of fun. Now, what most people will probably do, they'll have like an ansible.txt file somewhere or maybe in their documentation system. They'll say something like, when you first create a server, run these commands to get Ansible going. Even if you're using Ansible pull, you're going to have some commands you need to run it the first time. What command do you use? Are you going to memorize that? You put that in the documentation. Or you could just make a bash script and put the bootstrap commands in there. And you could just copy the bash script over to the server, run it, delete it. Um, but I decided to go a different direction um, because I always do, let's be honest. Um, I always have to be weird about everything, but this is cool. I set up a web server locally on my LAN that serves a bash script via Apache. Now, normally I don't really like it when people freely just um, curl URL script, you know, a, a U, the URL to a script and then pipe it to sudo bash, as so many websites will tell you to do when you actually go to uh, install something. And people don't even think about it. They just, oh yeah, copy and paste the command, done. And, and what if someone in the middle puts something malicious in there? Well, in this case, my web server for this purpose is not available anywhere else. It's on my LAN. So unless you are on my network, you can't get to this. And what I could do on any machine in the house is I could do curl, deploy, slash, bootstrap, and then pipe, sudo, bash. Because I have a server, web server named deploy, the script is bootstrap. That's the name of the script that's being served. So literally that one command, because I use Ansible pull, kicks off the first Ansible run because it's just a bash script. So it's going to effectively do like, um, in my case, it's checking if it's um, you know Arch Linux, Debian, Ubuntu, and then running whatever command to install Ansible. And then it's kicking off the first provision that it runs. And that one command is all I need to do. But then the elephant in the room is, what if it's Linode? That, that's not on my LAN. Well, that's where zero tier comes in because now you could bridge that gap or WireGuard or whatever. You could connect an outside source to your local source so it too can benefit from that local bash script that your Apache server is serving. And you could still bootstrap a new computer with that one command regardless of where it is. So that's literally all I ever do on anything. I just install the, um, you know, I just basically install the distribution 
And then I run that one command. And as far as what I'm using Ansible for, oh boy, where do I begin? Because um, I mentioned workstation, server, um, and, and base. So base, base is everything. My workstation role sets up flat packs. It um, hooks into the dconf config for GNOME. So it sets my wallpaper, my keyboard shortcuts, um, the um, defaults for the terminal emulator, the defaults for gedit, um, because I have everything in there. And you can literally watch when this runs. It, it just is so cool. Like the wallpaper will change in front of you as Ansible runs for the first time. And you'll see the desktop, your desktop kind of come to life. So regardless if it's a server or desktop, I still have the same code or the same repository and it has roles for each. And even the Mate desktop, I hook into the uh, settings there and I customize those. Um, Steam, I have a playbook for Steam, Sync thing, VirtualBox, um, you name it. Like literally every app, I have it down to a true and false. If Steam is true, it gets installed and it knows what's a workstation and what's a server, so I don't have to worry about those uh, server apps or those workstation apps ending up on a server. Um, I'm not saying anyone should go that crazy with this. Don't get me wrong. I know that it's orders of magnitude more work than anyone should probably put into this. But also keep in mind where this has come from is my YouTube channel. I was constantly wiping my laptop and installing a different distribution to do a review. And I got tired of rebuilding my computer literally every week. I'm not even kidding you. So I started building automation to get my laptop back to how I like it. Nowadays, I have a dedicated studio laptop that I do all my reviews on now. So I don't have that problem anymore. But that's kind of where this started. And like Tom mentioned earlier, I've been revving on this for at least five years, if not longer. And, and this is one of those things where... This, you know, people ask the question a lot, even of me, like, how do you back up your Linux uh, desktops, you know, and I'm like, I don't need to, I only care about the config and the applications on there, uh, in terms of making sure I know what was on there. So you build it as something that you can automatically reload again. Uh, right. That way, once again, my data is real time synced and backed up on other servers. And I use TrueNAS and things like that for my data side of things. But as far as the system, yeah, if, I mean, I, I would not be thrilled if it decided not to boot or the hard drive melted down and all the magic smoke came out. But the goal is be able to drop a new drive in, kick off those bootstrap scripts, have everything back to the way it was. You know, even the little things like having my GitHub set up so I can on any system, not only my system, but any of my lab systems that I do demos on for my YouTube channel, quickly go in here. I grab the scripts that put the things together, such as my command prompt, the way I want it, uh, load the different tools and things you want. So like, kick this off, have these here. And this is what Ansible uh, lends itself to be like very good for. That's true. And I, I need to find some sunglasses because I'm going to um, pull a Morpheus moment right now and say, what if I told you that <laughs> I could eliminate the bootstrap process? Now think about that for a minute. Eliminate the bootstrap process. How do you do that? Because you have to get Ansible installed, right? Um, well, <clears throat> I'm, something I'm experimenting with here, and I, I've done this on the Raspberry Pi, super easy. There's a an Ubuntu version for the Raspberry Pi Ubuntu server, and it has cloud config or excuse me cloud init built into it. So what I did was I put the Ansible pull command with the repository URL in cloud init. So that way, when it you know when you when I flash that image to a new Raspberry Pi, cloud init has that command in there, and it's in, it's told to run it when it's first when that's first set up when I first put that image on the SD card. There's no bootstrap process now, literally. I just take that image, I just create the image from the you know SD card where I put that tweak in there in the cloud in it, put that image on the on another SD card, put that SD card into a Raspberry Pi, power it on, make sure there's a network cable connected. Since the Ansible pull command is built in, I'll literally flash the SD card, walk away, and I'll get a message on my phone that the provision finished. And I had to do no bootstrap at all. Yeah, so, and we did discuss a little bit of this in the Homeland Show episode eight automation, uh, and you would say so. Cloud init J is uh, not as well documented of a no, project as it could be. No. <laughs> uh, so I guess one one thing I I, I need to ask people about um, some of these technologies is like, um, how's your anxiety and frustration levels in general? Are you the yeah. type of person that's really chill and easygoing and, and nothing really bothers you, or are you? Um, quick to get upset. I mean, we're all, you know, we're all unique, right? Um, in cloud, and it kind of frustrated me. Um, it's a great solution. 
there is documentation out there, but not as much as you would have in Ansible. Ansible is, oh man, anything you could ever think to do, someone's documented it somewhere. I mean, you could even just go into GitHub and search people's Ansible configs and probably find anything you'd want to do. I have done that before. Um, but Cloud Init, which is one of those things I, I want to do a tutorial on someday to kind of help people not be frustrated. Um, there isn't as much documentation. And I think, my, at least this is a theory, I think why the re, why that is, is because cloud init is often used by cloud providers when they roll out a distribution image for their customers. So you have, you know, high level engineers that are, they're just doing, you know, cloud init configs all day, every day. They're, they're always um, using this. So for them, it's probably like all the, they don't need documentation. They, they use it every day. They probably have their own documentation, but, um, for us, when we want to use that, most of the time people don't use cloud in it because it's for like, I mean, it's not, they don't really have the mindset often to know that it is for AWS and Google cloud most of the time. And what use case would this have for me at home? But if you can actually learn this and you don't have to learn it well, just a few things, you can really benefit from cloud in it. And one of the things I did was I made sure that my normal user account is already there. In, in the cloud init config file. So normally the username is Ubuntu. And this is kind of where I got frustrated because I changed the name and I followed the documentation, the little documentation I could find on how to change the name of the default user. I wanted it to be J instead of Ubuntu because I didn't want to create that user. And I never really fixed this, but if you change the username in the Ubuntu image, you will never log in. It'll never happen. I can't explain this. I, add, I added the SSH key to it I, I made sure that the user was created properly, the password hash, all of that. I promise you it was right, but it doesn't work. Now, what does work, I take that same configuration and put it in a different section, not the default user section, but a separate section. It works fine. Um, Ubuntu really doesn't like its default user customized, but I found a way to basically tell it, don't create that user, and then in the separate section, create this other user. But who has patience for that? Like, most people... Would uh, it actually? I did kind of give up for a week or two on this when I couldn't get that user working, and I came back to it and it worked fine. But I'm, I'm not saying everyone should use Cloud in it. Maybe after I do a video on it, I'll be able to endorse it because then I can give people something to uh, to use to learn it. But I do think if you do use Cloud in it, the documentation's there. Whether I create the video or not, there's benefit to home lab people because you could base, basically create the defaults there. And you can hook into things like Ansible and have that automatically run. And then you don't need that bootstrap process anymore. Yeah, those are, um, like I said, I remember that was a big discussion point and other comments on that uh, particular video uh, podcast episode, because that is the challenge. And I get that a lot of people have asked me to do some videos on it as well. And I, the reason for asking is that. So I just wanted to make sure it was clear. If you get frustrated, you're a... Um, you're sharing that with frustration with us as well. Trust me, yeah. we we are not uh, magicians when it comes to that either. We have had our own. I don't. I've only played loosely with it. Jay spent obviously much more time than I have on it, and still did not find it to be intuitive. So if you're stuck there, you're not alone. You're stuck actually with people who do this for a living. <laughs> and when I'm when I don't hit the record button, there are some very interesting words that come out of my mouth. But yeah, I'm trying to get these things working. So don't think for a minute that you know we're above frustration or anything like that. We're human too, believe it or not. We're not Cylons, I promise. Um, a couple other things about Ansible I should probably talk about briefly, at least. Um, the the Galaxy Ansible Galaxy. There, that's kind of like your place to gr to get things that other people have written. So the mindset to have with configuration management is if someone else has solved the problem, maybe you might consider using their work if it does what you want it to do. And you could do that. Ansible Galaxy, you could pull in things there that someone else has written. And then in addition to that, we have um, basically an entire server application that you can use optionally with Ansible. And it's called AWX, which is actually the open source version of Ansible Tower, which is what Red Hat calls it. You, if you're an enterprise, you can pay for the Ansible Tower server which gives you a GUI in the browser that you can use maybe, you know, as in place of a control center and basically execute those commands to all of your servers. AWX is something that you can use for free and you have to install it on, you know, you have to install it yourself because it's free, 
you know, the onus is on you getting it installed. It's not the easiest thing to install. It's it's one of the more frustrating things. I mean, they want you to use Ansible Tower. They're not going to come out and say that, but I mean, let's be honest. The you know, Red Hat is a company. They make money. They have bills to pay. So it's not that hard. You just have to be patient and go through the instructions. But lately, since I've I've set it up, there's been some great articles written that um, have come out that will walk you through the process of um, of doing that. Yes, that's very helpful. Um, before we wind down towards the end of the show, what's some of the most basic commands that people can get started with other than install Ansible? Where's that first couple things that they can do? What's that first thing you would recommend or maybe even a series of things that you have a video on? Yeah, I have a whole video series on that and we'll have that linked in the show notes. Yep. But if you go to learnlinux.tv, uh, my, the name of my channel, for those that don't already know, is the same name as the website. So it makes it kind of easy to know where to get it. And there's a section on there um, at the top. I forgot what the menu is called. I think it's tutorials. Um, if you go, if you yep. hover over that, go under there, there's Ansible. And uh, you can definitely check that out. It'll walk you through it. My series will take you from the very beginning all the way up to, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say advanced, but it's going to be, you're going to be comfortable with it. Then I have dedicated videos on Ansible Vault, which is how you can encrypt things. So if you are going to be using Ansible pull against a repository and you don't want, you know, private info, you know, visible, you can use Ansible Vault to encrypt things in that repository to keep those things private. I have a video on that and uh, Ansible pull as well. But as far as the beginning command, um, ping is always the one. It's oh, usually, yeah. Yeah, it's like dash M is the option and then it's ping. But what's interesting is it's not actually a ping. And I, I don't really like that they call it a ping because when we think of ping, most of us, it's the ICMP ping where you get a response. It's, right. a, it's the ICMP. So um, it's not that. What ping actually does in Ansible is it's making a real TCP connection via SSH to the target, and you could give it the an IP address of a server as an argument. And it's going to do what, it's going to basically look at the stats of that machine, like what distro are you and, and, and so on. It's getting some information about that machine, which is not what ping does. Everyone that has used ping, they know what that does. It, it doesn't do that. It doesn't give you information other than, you know, hopefully a ping response. But the Ansible version of ping, that's more than just a ping. It's not only just telling you that the host is on the network and is accessible. It's proving that it can actually interact with it by pulling some information and uh, sending that to you. There's also modules you could use to run a command. So you could test it with, I forgot what the option was, but give it the module apt basically and um, install a package, for example. You don't have to have a server for that. And that's one of the benefits is that you could just use Ansible however you want. Um, that's why it's complex in a way, but it's also simple at the same time. It's, uh, it's a gift that keeps on giving, I guess is the best way to describe it. Yeah, uh, someone asked in the chat, and I don't know the answer to this. Does Ansible support HashiCort vaults? We know Ansible has its own vault, but does it support the HashiCort vault as well, or is that a we don't know? I don't know. I've been meaning to look into HashiCorp Vault. I don't know if it's changed, but when I did look at it, I thought that it was extremely overly complicated. Um, not that that's ever stopped me before, because at one point I just decided to uh, set up my own mail server because I guess I, I have thrill issues or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I do plan on looking into it so I could talk more intelligently about it, because complex doesn't mean I'm not going to look at it. I'm definitely going to look at it. But, yeah. but the, for the use case that I had at the time that wasn't um, appropriate at that moment, but it, it has its own vault. Like I mentioned, does it hook into Ansible vault? I wouldn't be surprised. I'd probably be more surprised if it didn't. Um, but speaking of HashiCorp, um, the logical question, a lot of people that are more familiar with the different tools will ask is where does something like Terraform end and Ansible begin? And for those that don't know, Terraform is uh, also by HashiCorp, it can basically um, provision a machine um, or an entire installation. Um, for example, if you have Amazon Web Services, it could set up like 10 servers, your load balancer and your networking rules, all of that. You could script all of that, which is great. And you can use Terraform to maintain changes, and most people do this, but I find Terraform to be very messy after something exists. So I usually tell people Terraform is to make things exist. 
Ansible is to take things that already exist and keep them up to date with whatever the configuration should be. That's where I draw the line personally. Yeah, and I someone earlier in the chat had said uh, Terraform provisions the VM and Ansible configures the VM. So yeah. it's kind of the difference between provisioning and configuring. In uh, you know XCPNG recently announced some a lot more Terraform support. That's an example of all right. We're going to use Terraform to build these VMs off of these templates in terms of, you know, this distro with this template. And then once you have them at the ready, then you're going to kick off either whichever method you choose, like Jay mentioned, the bootstrap on there and kick it off and start pulling your Ansible configs to actually make the VM dance and get all your things loaded. So uh, yeah. it has to exist before Ansible starts. I mean, technically, if you wanted to get really crafty because XCPNG is all API driven. You could even write Ansible code to talk to a Zen server to build some of the templates, but that's outside of it. Terraform's the more base, more ideal product to use that with. So that's kind of the dividing line for it. And and one thing about dividing lines with Ansible is you also have to be careful with that too, because anytime you say um, Ansible doesn't do X, which is probably logical, someone's going to say, "Yeah, it does that." Um, it didn't even know it. Um, so, for example, it can spin up VMs. It can hook into an API of a VM of a hypervisor solution. Um, it, it can create containers for you. You'd give it the image, and I mean, you can use Ansible for that. I I just like Terraform for it. Um, but going back to CloudInit, um, our favorite topic now. Noah mentioned that he had the same problem with Raspberry Pi, where you try to change the username from the default of Ubuntu to whatever you want it to be, and you can never log in. I don't really know why that happens, but the general idea, and I'm trying to remember off the top of my head what I did, again, video will come eventually. I'm fairly certain what I did was I told it, no, do not create a default user, just don't. But then later on, there's a section where you can put the user that you do want to create. Now, obviously, you have really big problems if you're telling it not to create any user at all, and you just have root, and you can't even SSH. It's even worse. Well, you can't SSH anyway if you change the username for whatever reason. So I just said no, no default user. And then earlier, or excuse me, later on, I was very careful to tell it, yeah, create a user for me with this SSH key, pass for, or the uh, password hash, and make it sudo. But in a specific section outside of the default user, because some weird breakage happens when you try to change the name of the default user in Ubuntu. Again, I don't know why, but just say no. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what I did. And then later on in a separate section, you could create that user. And then there was some module. Again, I'm kind of new to CloudInit um, in full transparency, but there was a option in there where you could tell to run commands. And then that's where I put the initial Ansible pull in that section. And everything was, was great. <laughs> it worked out pretty well. So um, at some point, I'll do a video on cloud in it, but I can't promise when because, you know, the unfortunate truth is I have to learn it before I could teach it. And I don't know it enough yet to teach it. But once I feel, have it far enough along to where I think I can, even if I'm intermediate at that point, even if the entry level stuff might help someone, I'll, I'll start doing videos on it at that point. So just stay subscribed if or subscribe if you haven't already done so. It'll show up eventually, I promise. Yeah, and we didn't uh, mention it earlier, but I, I may be mispronouncing it, but I believe it said... Um, idempotence and it's the uh it's yeah. the yeah it's it's used in mathematics and ansible i i that's where i've heard the term most frequently but it's idempotence before i don't even know if i'm saying that right isn't it sad the person that wrote a book on something is mispronouncing things it happens to everyone mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, it does. You know, before I ever went to a Linux conference, I mispronounced many things before I met people in person because I've only ever read them online. Uh, but it is a concept. Someone brought it up and we didn't mention it. But, uh, you know, it's making sure that all the, this always gives you the same result. These servers are all the same. It's reaching that level in there. So it is a popular term you may hear. We, I, I just didn't hear us mention it earlier. And someone mentioned it. I think we need to kind of mention it for, uh, you know, really quick. Um, it's really important in Ansible because, for example, there's, a, there's um, several modules you can use to basically take a string that's in a text file and replace it with something else. Now, where the problem comes in is if you do that wrong, it's going to not only replace that string that you told it to, but every time it runs, it's going to append that line to the same file over and over and over again. And the biggest thing here that, that will tell you that this is happening is if you run Ansible and it's telling you that there's a change, but you didn't make a change. It's always saying that there's a change. Why is it doing that? And not always, but often the problem is that it's not idempotent, if I'm saying that right. Um, basically what that means is that 
you think that you're doing one thing one time, but it's doing it every time. That's that's one thing there. And find and replace text. Um, you have to put the caret symbol at the beginning, for example, when you're replacing a line. Um, otherwise, it's just going to keep doing it over and over again. And there's other options. Um, we could probably uh, do a whole tutorial series on this, yeah. but I have. But you have done a tutorial series. So the more, that. yeah, so, we, we try not to get too much of things that would have been very that lend themselves to more visual tutorials on the podcast right. here uh, that's why we do reference some of the videos that we've done because they're easily accessible you can just you know go watch them on youtube and that gives you that better visual reference for these type of things we talk about so you can watch because it is important that you know which characters go in which order when you're typing commands because uh, you don't want that to just keep replacing a line or adding another line you want it to replace versus concatenate the line so yeah. those little nuances are easier uh, expressed within uh, the tutorial videos, not on the podcast. Yep. And speaking of topics and diving into things, my challenge for our audience is on the YouTube version of this to, in the comments, mention something that you want us to cover. We're not going to promise that we'll cover anything in particular, but let us know in the comments there what you think we should cover in a future episode. And you never know, it might just become a topic that we'll cover here. And uh, you could, you guys could just put the, those in the comments. And if we get a lot of people asking for a particular thing, that's going to potentially put it up higher on the list if it's something that we feel is in scope. Yeah, when when the challenge we're having, we have so many ideas. We we want to actually favor the ones that you maybe pick out of those first. Um, if not, don't worry. We will have content. If you have no ideas or not sure where to start. That's fine too, because we yeah. we do. Uh, we that's actually our discussion we have all the time is trying to nail down which is the next step, which is the next thing we're going to start. So for us, it's the order that's the problem, not the content. Because right. <laughs> I could I could list off ten different things every time we do one episode. I'll have ten more ideas for you know just speaking for myself. But then the the challenge comes to be: is it like is it time to talk about this yet, or is that too soon? That's usually what the discussion is being, but. Yeah, like Tom said, we'll prior prioritize things higher in the list that yep. people want more. And of course, you can find all this at thehomelab.show. That's where we have the show notes. We leave the YouTube up as well. So whether or not you want to join us for a live stream or you want to add comments here, we've offered all the different ways to listen to us. And it is brought to you by Linode, the sponsor of today. Um, and, and in the most literal sense, when you click the download button, you're pulling it from a Linode server that is hosting yep. the site. <laughs> yep. So if you didn't know, if you're on the site now and you didn't know you, you, you're you using Linode, surprise, you're using Linode right now. You're um, using it already. You didn't even know it. Um, and we, we've made these available as uh, MP3s to download, so you can download direct or any podcast app that you want. We've tried to publish in all of them. If you find one we're not published in, let us know, and we'll do our best to get it over there as well. And spread this podcast to everyone. Post it on your, your socials. Um, tell your friends and colleagues about it. Um, if, if people ask, how can we give back? That's the best way to give back. Just tell everyone about it. Spread the knowledge. That's yeah. uh, That would really help out. You know, share us on your socials, put us on the Twitters or whichever platforms you're using. And, uh, you know, we want to see more people get in a home lab. That's a big goal we have. We want to see more people in tech. This is uh, it's it's really daunting to get started. And that's kind of our goal to get you started in tech. And, you know, maybe you want to pursue a career in this. It starts with that. Um, I was just on another show and it's funny because the hiring manager, uh, my friend Bob, he said that's one of his frequent questions when they hire techs at the, at the his IT company is, he says, you know, what's in your home lab? It's just a general question to ask because it's not always people, people don't always take the time to listen on a resume, but even hiring managers are going, hey, this is something we want to know. We want to know what you're actually working on at home. Are you learning this? Because maybe those skills are transferable to a job. So these are, you know, real world things we want to help people with. And that's a topic on my list that I want to cover at some point is what are we running in our home lab? But the trick is I have some people, I want to see if they want to be a guest. I'm not going to say who, because I don't want to promise anything. Yeah. But at some point, I think it'd be a fun episode to have a guest and have a topic around like, what are we running? Yeah. There's so much fun stuff. Oh yeah. But Anyways, thank you all for joining us. There's 151 of you. So like I said, share this out. That's our, that's a big thank you for us. So happy to have all of you here. Me and Jay are going to go back to, um, I don't know, whatever it is else we do when we're not doing this. So, we're saving, right. we're joining us. This one server at a time. One server at a time. This is Tom Lawrence and Jay LaCroix. And I'll see you guys next week. Probably next week. All right. Yep.